Hello and welcome to the Anchor Sunday Sermons podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Sunday sermons here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. Obviously, I think you can understand why Russia is doing this. They look at our administration and say, the United States is weak. Let's go for it. This is our opportunity. Putin, hey, look, Putin is a master chess player. The Persians invented chess, but the Russians perfected it. Putin is always two or three steps ahead of, of, of a lot of people around the world. He's a smart guy. He's evil, but he's smart. And so now he sees how the United States uh, is in a passive mode, a non-interventional mode, and so he's going to take advantage of this. So he will probably take Ukraine. And the threat of economic sanctions from the United States or NATO, is his, he laughs at that. Ah, stupids. They, they think that's going to work. I'm not afraid of them. Look, Putin controls the gas lines going to Europe. If Europe messes with him too much, he can just shut off the gas lines. And they will freeze to death in Europe because their natural gas is coming from him. He knows they're not going to do anything. And he knows the United States is not going to do anything. The United States is so woke in their military, we don't, have, we don't have the courage to fight anymore. We're more worried about if a transgender can enter the army now. He sees this and he says, that's weakness. Our ads for recruiting from the military is you can fulfill your dreams of being a, a, a lesbian or whatever and go into the military. What? Uh-uh. No, he sees that. And so my thing is, he's going to do it. But what you're going to see in prophecy is he, if he is Gog of Magog, if we're that close, I'm not saying he is, but if, he, if we're that close, then he would fit the bill of Gog of Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, here's the th- interesting thing. Because of the intel that you have from God, you know what his next move is. What do you mean? Well, he might take the Ukraine. He's already taken Crimea. He's going to take the Baltic states and all this other area because what he really wants and what Scripture reveals is God wants something, and he wants it called Israel. He wants Israel, and he wants Jerusalem, and he wants the Temple Mount. That's the intel that no one realizes. But if if you were going to the brain of of Putin, that's what he ultimately wants if he's Gog. Because Scripture says that's what he's going to go after. That's the next phase. So a lot of this other stuff is just funny business. He really wants Israel. And I know Israel sends their guys up to talk to him, but they're, they're, they're fools in trying to negotiate with Russia. He wants what they have, and he will come and attack. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But we're getting ready to go into a a, a part in Daniel that's very heavy with prophecy. So I got to go deep into that, and this is some high fruit, okay? And sometimes we just got to go pick the high fruit. A lot of of times churches hang around in the bottom fruit, easy pickings, real easy, but this is not. Uh, So I got to warn you, this is not, this this takes a lot of study on our part, and it's going to take, I got to share some history with you so you understand the prophecy, and here's what you'll come out knowing you'll know exactly where you're at in prophetic history, exactly, and what the next stage is. You'll know that. Now, on a personal level, 
here's what you're going to find out. It's a hard principle, but we all have to grasp this. It gets worse before it gets better. That is a very difficult principle. But this is basically, I could summarize prophecy in that one statement. All of prophecy prophesizes that it gets worse before it gets better. If I could sum everything up. And this is why a lot of people avoid prophecy, because it doesn't appeal to the masses because of what it says. But here's the deal. You're going to see Daniel predict how bad it gets for Israel, but then at the end, it shows the victory that God will win and establishing his kingdom through his son. So it's always like that, that there's there's hope at the end. And, you know, you probably have experienced this. I experienced this yesterday. I watched my stepfather die in front of me, and um, I saw, you know, the transition from this life, and he obviously went to heaven and to the new Jerusalem, and I'm reminded every time I, look, I, I thought about that last night is it gets worse before it gets better. Now, all the hope we have, and you've had loved ones die too, but the hope we have is, no, wait, I'll see them again. It's a temporary separation. They're in the new Jerusalem. They're doing great. Uh, we're on the departing end. But what's the promise? You're going to be resurrected too. We're all going to be resurrected and live in the kingdom. Even, uh, you know, uh, the past saints will all be there, and we know we'll be We'll be reconciled at that time. We'll have a reunion. But what's the, what's the reality? The reality is it gets worse before it gets better. You will have to experience death. You will have to experience suffering. And if we don't get raptured soon, some might die. That's the reality. No one wants to hear that because you're not going to hear that of Joel Osteen. No, no, but it's not. This is the thing. So we understand how the church ends. The church doesn't end in glory, it ends in apostasy. We understand how humanity ends. It ends in humanity basically destroying itself and God having to pull the plug saying, you are so wicked, I have to pull the plug. Think about what we're doing now. We're messing with creation and getting into people's DNA. And then we're messing with cutting off body parts that they had given by God and changing them into a girl, into a guy, and a guy, and a girl. Hey, we're way beyond Sodom, way beyond. And we get so bad, we got to. he's got to pull the plug. But again, what does prophecy say? Yes, it will get worse before it gets better. Now, we don't grieve as those who have no hope because our hope is in the future. But here's what you have to understand. God is saying to you through this passage, you're going to play a game, and there's four quarters. The first quarter, you will lose. Second quarter, you will lose. Third quarter, you'll lose. And in the fourth quarter, you won't win until the last second of the game. Here's the question. Can you play the game knowing that all through the game, you will lose until the very end? That's the challenge. And most Christians right now are not up for the challenge because they've been tiptoeing through the tulips in the churches that preach a light gospel, a half gospel, whatever, and they're not up for the challenge. You, most Christians think they're going to get their life back. I'm here to tell you the reality is you're not. I already know what prophecy says. You don't get your life back. It gets worse. That's not a message that sells, but it's true. So here's the challenge. Can you fight 
even though you lose in this life. You see what I'm saying? You, lose, you win, ultimately. We're working from a position of victory. We win in the end of the fourth quarter, but here's our victory. It's gonna get worse, 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 and then we're raptured. There's a victory. You see what I'm saying? It's not gonna get better, 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 and then we're raptured. It's gonna get worse, 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 and then boom, then we're taken away. And then that's the, 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 the last Hail Mary, so to speak, into the end zone, and we win. Are you okay with that? Can you accept that reality? Because if you can, then you can fight. Because if you won't accept this reality, you won't fight. You'll give up. You'll become useless like Laodicean. And so this is, what you, this is the principle I want you to learn in this passage. It's a beautiful principle. It's real, but it's hard. And we'll work through the, the motivations of it. So let's talk about where we're at in, in the, uh, the setting of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, obviously, from God. No one can interpret the dream. He's told, if you, you magicians, the school of the Magi, can interpret this, I'm going to kill every one of you. And we talked about that last week, and I want to go into depth in that. But uh, the, ch- the challenge is then, Daniel uh, goes to the Lord, and he, gets the rece- uh, he receives the dream, the interpretation, and, of course, he's going to tell Nebuchadnezzar what this dream is. And so that's where we're at. In, in the passage. So let's pick up where we're at. He's going to tell Nebuchadnezzar what God revealed to him. The big issue you're going to see is this is the basis of why we say there's a global government coming. It's this passage. Okay. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take before me the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and thus said to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah. Notice how he distinguishes Daniel. He's from Judah. He is an Israelite. He worships the God Yahweh. There's a, uh, there's a evangelism thing going on here. Uh, and you will see that this, all this evangelism with Nebuchadnezzar comes to faith in the Lord by chapter four. Um, <clears throat> anyway, who will make known the king the interpretation? All right. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. Now, notice what he's doing. He calls out all four branches of the Babylonian religion, which were called the school of the Magi, right? Remember the Magi? Here's the interesting thing that's happening. Daniel is exposing the Magi because they cannot declare this to the king because it has to be from divine origin. So he's basically outing them as charlatans, but at the same time saving them because his ability to interpret the dream gets them off the chopping block. This is going to cause credibility for Daniel because what's going to happen after this is Daniel will be promoted the head of the Magi. And now that he's, he'll be the head of the Magi, he will retrain the Babylonian school into the worship of Yahweh. And it was so influential that 600 years later, Magi came to Bethlehem to visit the king of kings. 600 years later, you can see the effect of Daniel on that school of the Magi. So this is actually going to create credibility 
for, for Daniel. This is, this is what gives him a right, uh, a credibility to, have, to, to say something. And that's the same thing with you and I. If we help these unbelievers in whatever way, that earns the right to be heard many times. You live a consistent Christian life, you help them in some way, and you've earned the right to be heard. That's critical in your evangelism one-on-one. Okay, but there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets. This is Yahweh, and he's going to explain it. He has made known to the king. So Yahweh did this to you. He's made known this vision, this dream, to King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. Latter days is a prophetic idiom uh, or a, a Hebraic idiom for prophecy. So when you're in the world of prophecy, when it says latter days, you have to understand who it's referring to. There's two types of latter days. One is latter days in reference to Israel, and then one is latter days in reference to the church. You got to know what passage is dealing with what entity, Israel or church. We as a church are in the last days of the church age. We're done because we're in the last day. The last day started in World War I, and it's continuing on till today and soon to come to an end. But Israel has been in its last days all the way back to this period of time and will continue through the tribulation and then vault itself into the millennial kingdom. So Israel's latter days extend from 586 B.C. all the way to the end of the millennium. So when you're interpreting things in the Old Testament versus the New Testament, you've got to understand that in your, in your biblical interpretation. So the latter days is, in this passage, contextually, is referring to Israel's last days, okay, which is a major span of time, a major span of time. He goes, your dream, the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed, about what would come to pass after this, after him, right? After his kingdom. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me more, or, or to, uh, revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. He's trying to say, look, don't look to me as me giving you the information. Look to Yahweh. He's deflecting the credibility back to Yahweh. But for the sakes of, uh, who make known the interpretation to, uh, to the king. For our sakes, the Israelites' sakes, and the Babylonians' sakes, we don't want to die, so God has given this to preserve Israel. And so, again, more witnessing that the God of Israel protects his own. And that's what the message is going to Nebuchadnezzar. The reason he gave me the information is to prevent us from dying and you massacring the rest of Israel throughout the process of this eventually. So it's, it's pre- uh, preservative more witnessing. The Babylonian gods can't protect. Yahweh can. Okay. He goes, you, O king, were watching to behold a great image. The image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. The idea of the splendor was excellent, that this is the best that man can achieve as far as governments. So the statue obviously is a carved out statue representing these. This is the work of the hands of human beings as far as forming governments are, is concerned, okay? And, and the idea that it stood before you and its form was awesome. Now, even though these things are spectacular that humans achieve governmental-wise, the word in Hebrew instead of awesome should be terrifying, but they're terrifying because what they will do to human beings most governments don't see human beings as being valuable. They kill them if necessary. 
Look what communism has done. 100 million, right? Most regimes have no problem killing people. Nazism, whatever. Euthanasia, soft euthanasia, abortion, all these other things. These kingdoms are evil. That's the whole point. They might look beautiful in the eyes of man and sculpted by the eyes of man, but they're evil and that should terrify you. That's his idea. We'll continue on. This image, this image head was of fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So he succinctly tells them what this is. What this is 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 termed by the Messiah called the times of the Gentiles. This statue represents the times of the Gentiles and the empires over Jerusalem and over the Temple Mount, which will be dominated by Gentiles until the second coming. Now, it doesn't, sorry, let me say this. It allows temporary control of Jerusalem, temporary control of the Temple Mount, but not permanent. So for instance, in the Maccabean Revolt, Israel regained control of the Temple and Jerusalem in the Maccabean Revolt, but they quickly lost it when Rome came in. Then, uh, let's see, later in, 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 in history, let's, let's, let's go to 1967. In 1967, Israel's a nation again in 1948. In 67, they had the Six-Day War. Israel regains the old city and uh, the Temple Mount. But guess what? Controlling the Temple Mount was temporary because Moshe Dayan got in there and said, look, we've got to give the Temple Mount back. We'll cause a holy war with the Islamic world. And so Moshe Dayan gave it back, and Israel relinquished its control of the Temple Mount to today, that is control of, by Jordan, and in Islamic mosques, two of them are on there. So, but even, even Jerusalem, Jerusalem is not fully controlled by Israel. There's Eastern Jerusalem, and they've given that to a lot of the Palestinian refugees and, and other, uh, other people groups, and so they don't have full control of this. And so basically what we're saying is from that point in Daniel's time to even today, all the way through the second coming, Israel will not have full control, permanent control, of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. Now, this should ask, uh, answer a lot of questions when you look at the Middle East, all the dynamics that are happening in the Middle East has to do with Jerusalem and the Temple Mount on a geopolitical level. Now, they won't tell you the spiritual reasons, but I will tell you what the Bible says the spiritual reasons are. In Isaiah 14, when Satan decides to rebel, one of the five I wills is this. I will sit on the mountain of God. What mountain? Zion. And he will rule there. Well, we know what's predicted. Satan will rule there through the Antichrist. That one of the five I wills will be accomplished for three, at least three and a half years. And so the game that's being played in the satanic world is for control of Jerusalem and control of that temple mount. That's what it's about. So you can erase all the political intrigue there and just look at it from the Bible standpoint. They all want Jerusalem. Why in the world would Muslims want Jerusalem when Jerusalem's not even mentioned in the Quran? Why would they want that? Well, they say it says it in their hadith or their, 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 their commentary on the Quran that, oh, this is where uh, uh, Muhammad ascended 
on his horse into the air. Uh, his horse's name was uh, Barack Hussein Obama. I mean, um, it was Barack. And the horse's name is Barack. Sorry, I, I get tripped up on... So he rides on this magical horse, you know, from Jerusalem. And that's in, the, in, in the, their commentary. It's not in the Quran. And so they made this big deal about him ascending there and then made Jerusalem the third uh, most important site in Islam. It has nothing to do with Islam. Nothing. But they want it. All of them want it. And they call Jerusalem Al-Quds in, in Arabic in the, in the Islamic world that they want. What does Iran want? They want Al-Quds, they said. They said it. What does is, what is, uh, Russia want? Israel. What does Syria want? Israel. What do the Palestinians want? Israel. They all want it. Now, they might say for political reasons or religious reasons, but the reason is it's satanic. That's the reason. And this is why the times of the Gentiles has the ability to get you to understand what's happening on a geopolitical level in the Middle East. Okay, so let's, let's analyze the statue. Again, the statue represents four Gentile empires until the second coming. And what it's trying to say is several things. First of all, if you notice the statue, it goes from unity to division as you go down the statue. So the unity is seen in the head. That's one unit, okay? And then you go to the chest. It has two arms. Then you go to the thighs and, and, and the, the waist, but it breaks into the legs. And then the rest of the body is division as well. And then when you go to the toes, it's a tin division. So you go from unity to division. Now, what do you mean by that, Brandon, on a geopolitical level? What, I, what Daniel is referring to is... At the beginning of this, these Gentile empires, you will have all the power solidified in one individual, Nebuchadnezzar. But after him and the successive empires will come um, a breaking down of a, uh, of a monarchy into multiple rulers. So there'll be diffusion of the authority. There'll be a division of authority is the idea. Nebuchadnezzar's one authority, he was above the law, he could make the shots called, and his government worked seamlessly because he made all the calls. But what will happen is the successive governments will get bureaucratic. So when you, the Medes and Pers take, Persians take over, you have to deal with the Medes and you have to deal with the Persians. It's a diffusion of power. Then after that, you have Alexander the Great, who ruled singularity, but it broke into four generals. Then when you go to Rome, Rome started out with Caesar being the supreme ruler, but then it breaks into divisions into a republic, and the power is diffused as you go down. That's important because as you go into the ten toes, the power is there, but it's diffused in over the entire globe and not just one region. Okay? Second, the preciousness of the metals deteriorates to clay. You go from gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then you uh, go into clay, which is the least precious of all of them. Now, what does it mean by that? Okay, the preciousness doesn't mean that these kingdoms are good and they're valuable. What it refers to is that, um, how do you want to say it? The, the, 
the way they govern gets worse and worse. So think about this. In an absolute monarchy, um, the governing aspect is, is basically one guy. He tells everyone what to do. And it, and it has to do with this first point from unity to division. So as you go and you break into a bureaucracy, what starts happening is the gr- government gets corrupted by multi- multiple factions in that particular government because it's divided. I mean, think about like, take for instance our government. Look how they function. They're like children, right? What it's showing you is that they're at the clay level. They can't even, they, they can't even do anything. Our, our, our politicians, our government is impotent in doing anything right. And think about this. Let me, let me give an example. Is our government more broken up now than when the founders founded our government? Yeah, it's, it's, there's factions, right? You have all this bureaucracy. Think about this. Think about the bureaucracy that we have now in American politics versus the kind of bureaucracy that was happening in 1776. Pretty easy to get things done, wasn't it? Now it's impossible. You can't get anything done. So what's happened is you, you've went from a precious metal, even in the history of the United States, to now your clay. You can't even function correctly anymore. This is how the Gentile empires will go. Their functioning gets dysfunctional, if, that, if I can put it that way. Third, the weight of the metals and the clay lessens. The image is top-heavy and weak in its feet. So gold in gravity-wise, uh, compared to silver, compared to brass, compared to iron, obviously is more weightier. It, it has more gravity. And, and so the idea is this, this is referring to the glory of a kingdom, even though it might be evil, to, I, I guess, it just, it's in shambles is the way I would put it. It's in shambles. It goes from functioning correctly to just absolute shambles to clay. It's, it's just no good. Um, and so that makes the, the image top-heavy, obviously, because basically what we're seeing now is a deterioration and man's ability to govern themselves, if I, can, if I can state that. Man has got this thing so messed up, there's no way back. Does that make sense? And what I mean by that is it spells out on a geopolitical level where we go from here. It'll get so messed up politically that the world will call for a man to solve all their problems. So as it deteriorates and goes from gold to the clay, it gets so bad, they will have to call on a strong man to get this thing in order because the political process will be so messed up. Now, let me give you some insight on this. I've been studying these guys for a long time. The globalists now say this, check this out according to this prophecy. We have to start working without the impediment of a nation's laws. We have to now govern without the nation's constitutions. That's what the globalists are saying. We know better than they. 
We know better than the people, so we have to find a way to govern over these people's laws. That's what they say. Now, how are they doing that right now? They're doing it through corporations. They have sidestepped the Constitution and doing it through corporations. They're doing it through politicians. Now, think about this. As an example, you have the, the in, in New York, the governor is saying, we're still going to do masks even though uh, the courts have said, no, you don't do that. But she's still doing it. you got companies now enforcing vaccines and masks even though the Supreme Court told Biden, no, that's unconstitutional. But they're doing it. You see, this is the deal they made. That they won't do it through our legal system. They will do it through the privatized businesses to bring this in. Because our political system is so corrupted and they can't get anything accomplished. So they know they have to work around it. Again, that's an evil thing, but this is how they're working. Daniel says, this is what you should see in your government. Four, the metals increase in strength except the clay. Now, iron is the strongest. Iron represents the Roman Empire as it crushed people. And the idea is Rome is still with us and will crush us. So a lot of people think, well, we're being, we're being taken over by Marxists, which is true. We're being taken over by communists. We're taken about being taken over by globalists. True. We're being taken over by, you know, socialists, whatever. Yeah. On a political level, that's what you can say. But take one step back. And the term that Bi the Bible is using is no, you're being taken over by Rome. You're being crushed by Rome. All of that stuff, Marxism, communism, comes out of Rome. Again, not talking about literal Rome, I'm talking about metaphorical Rome, the entity that's crushing all nations as we speak. Anyway, the, there are four chronological kingdoms with the fourth kingdom having five phases. You'll see three of the, the phases in Daniel 2, and then when we get to Daniel 7, you'll get, see two more phases, which is a total of four, sorry, five phases in the Roman Empire. You're currently in phase two. You are currently in phase two. You watched while a stone was cut out with human hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke it in pieces. So the idea is the stone. The stone is a, a, a uh, metaphor and a symbol for an individual in all of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Can you guess who the stone is? It's Jesus, okay? The stone was cut out, cut out without hands. The idea is no human hands originated him. He originates out of heaven because he's the second person of the Trinity. Even though he became a man, he originates out of heaven. So this is what God is doing, not what man is doing. No, this is why when they made altars in the Old Testament, they made it out of stone. They could not hewn the stone. They had just to fit the stone together because the stones represented not only Messiah, but being cut without, without human hands. This is why when Nimrod built the Tower of Babel, how did he build the Tower of Babel with? Stone? No. He made the Tower of Babel with bricks, a uniform look which symbolizes man's accomplishment rather than stones representing that which comes from God, okay? Which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. So it, 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 it attacks the image at the last stage. The stone attacks the image at the last stage. 
Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. So this messianic kingdom that Messiah will bring will destroy all human kingdoms to where there's no vestige of them left and no trace of them, as if they had never existed once Messiah rules and reigns in the messianic age. We look forward to that. But notice this, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, the idea in when you're in prophecy literature, when it refers to mountains, it's a metaphor for a kingdom slash government. So since we're in a prophetic passage, this mountain, this great mountain that fills the whole, the whole earth is the messianic government, which will control the entire planet via Messiah on the throne of David. That's what it's saying. It will fill the whole earth. This is what you pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're praying for his kingdom to come on earth. This is the kingdom you're praying for. And this kingdom will smash Rome. It'll smash the last phrase, the phase of it. Now, I want you to think about this. The Jews knew this. You know it. But look how far we are removed from the first coming. There's an element where the Jews were half right, but their timing was wrong. They read Daniel just like you did. They interpreted and said, okay, we got, we got Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Ah, we're in the final stage of the Gentile empire. When Messiah comes, we know what Daniel said. He will crush them to pieces. That's why they kept asking Messiah, are you going to establish the kingdom? This is the tripping point for the Jews today. They said, if he's Messiah, why didn't he bring the kingdom? The problem is they excluded the first coming. That the first coming didn't usher in the kingdom, the second coming does. So they had their second coming right, the timing was wrong. And that's caused them to reject the Messiah. Now, here's the thing. It says Messiah will destroy Rome. Well, the implication is Rome is still with us. I'll show you where she's at. She's still with us. In fact, the ultimate Caesar will be the Antichrist. He is the last of the Caesars, is Antichrist. Let's continue on. This is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation of it before the king. You, king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Notice what he says. My God gave you this kingdom. Again, more evangelism happening, but he's telling them, Nebuchadnezzar, the truth. You don't have what you have unless Yahweh gave it to you. And whenever, wherever your children of men dwell or the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, this is a Jewish idiom. He has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. So basically, you have sovereignty, absolute sovereignty that God has given you over the whole realm in which your kingdom is built. Now, it didn't control the whole world. It controlled that area of Mesopotamia, okay? So um, it was an absolute monarchy, and it didn't go past these, these particular areas. The preceding empires will grow in size and expansion. But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours. How is it inferior? It's inferior in the sense that it has diffused the power. It's Medo-Persia. It's two powers coming together. So that power is decentralized. 
That's, how, that's what the word inferior is meaning. It's more dis, decentralization of power and does not refer to geographical control, which will be greater in the latter kingdoms to come. It's true. Medo-Persia will extend their borders. Greece will extend the borders through Alexander the Great, and Rome will extend their borders to encompass all of the Mediterranean. But it, they are inferior because it's a decentralization of power. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. Now, this kingdom is referring to Alexander the Great. We'll see more of that in Daniel chapter 7. And Alexander the Great is actually prophesied in the book of Daniel. Alexander the Great actually plays a really prophetic role in all of this. It's funny that his kingdom, when he came to Jerusalem, he was going to take Jerusalem, take Israel. But the, the, the high priest came out to him and said, our prophet Daniel predicted you, and here you are in Scripture. Upon seeing that, he backed off of trying to do anything bad to Israel and the Jews. In fact, before that, Alexander the Great had a vision, a dream given to him by God that told him that when he comes to Jerusalem, men in white would meet him and tell them about the prophecy. He had that before he went in. And guess what? The high priest and all the priests came out in white. And when he saw that, he said, that's the vision I got. I'll leave you alone. So God worked through Alexander the Great. Pretty amazing story. We'll get into the details later. But, that, but his kingdom broke up into four. That's why you have a division happening in this, and the power is diffused. The fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. It's very strong, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, the kingdom will break into pieces and crush all others. Rome will crush. It crushed in Jesus' day, and it's crushing right now. And eventually, it will crush every human being on the planet. And by crushing, doesn't mean it obliterates. It means it controls. It controls. That's the crushing aspect of Rome. It controls everything the person does. So you got Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Greeks, and then here are the five phases of Rome. Again, Daniel only remarks of three of them. The first, second, and fourth, third, and fifth phase are in Daniel chapter 7. But here's all five phases. Rome will be unified. Then it will go into a division of the two legs. Then it will move into global Roman imperialism. Then it will move to global imperialism, 10 regional divisions, and represented by the toes and the 10 horns. And then global Roman imperialism, absolute imperialism under the Antichrist. These are the five phases. Now hang with me. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. So that's second phase. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of clay. Okay, that last phrase, so verse 41 says, phase two, the kingdom shall be divided. And then that verse 42, that is phase four. Because before the ten, the, the ten toes will come a global government and then that global government will break up into 10 global regions that control the entire planet. And they're already thinking about that right now. They're already, they've, already, they've already selected the different regions. We're in what's called the North American region, according to this, their plan. They have the whole world broken up into 10 regions already. We will be lumped into with Canada, 
and Mexico. That will be considered one global region. Then you have Central America and South America as another region. You have Australia as another region. Asia as another region. Europe as another region. And you will have 10 regions. They're already planning this, guys. I'm not making that up. They're already doing what the Bible says they're going to do. So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. The seed of men is referring to the, the clay. Um, and so what is, what is it saying here? This is interesting. The next phase that's coming is the global religion, sorry, global government, and then the Ten League Confederation. Okay, well, here's the interesting thing. Daniel's saying there's a problem, though, in it. As Rome was strong with iron, the last few phases of it will be breakable. It will, be, it will shatter. It, it will, will not come together because it won't have adhesion to, it, to itself. Iron doesn't mix with clay or the seeds of men. The seeds of men is distinct between the government. So the iron represents Rome and its globalism and what it's trying to accomplish. The clay represents the seeds of men and let me parse this out a little bit. Right now, globalism has a problem. And they know what problem it is. And they're trying to overcome it as best they can. But according to Daniel, they will not overcome this. And what is it? They cannot overcome patriotism. They cannot overcome nationalism. It's deep, deep down in people's roots whether you're from Belgium, whether you're from Germany, whether you're from France, Mexico, Central America, wherever you're from, America, they're having a hard time getting people to be more globally minded rather than patriotic. That's why they've changed the term patriotic to be racist. That's why they said, if you want borders, that's xenophobic and racist. Why? Because they want people to think globally. That's what they teach your kids in school to think like global citizens, not be patriotic to America. That's why the hatred of America themes out there. That's why they want you to be loyal to the global governance. This is what's all taught in, in Europe, by the way, all, all around the world. So here's the problem Daniel's saying. They won't be able to get a buy-in on this. People will be more loyal to their country, and that creates the instability in the global government. People love their country, and it's going to be hard to break them of that. So the issue of the, the iron is Rome and its globalism, and the clay, the seeds of men, are their loyalties to their country. Once God broke up the countries in Babylon, that loyalty stays deep, deep, deep-seated, and he wants that. He wants you to be loyal to your country. That's where the fight is. And that's why he says it's partly iron, partly clay. Globalism versus nationalism. We're seeing that play out right now. And in the days that these king, uh, uh, of these kings, talking about the ten toes, the ten kings that eventually be ruled by the Antichrist, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people because it's eternal. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. His, glory, the, 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 his glorious kingdom that Messiah brings 
is eternal. Yes, it will be for a thousand years, but then that kingdom morphs into eternity forever. Forever will Jesus be the ruler of that kingdom. God has granted him that. His Father has given him his Father's throne. And therefore, all authority is given unto the Messiah forever, forever. And it stands forever. So that's the, that's the hope. That's the good news. You've seen the bad news, but this is the hope. It's got to get worse before it gets better. The better is the Messiah's kingdom. Okay. And as much as you saw that stone was cut out of, of, of a mountain without hands, of the mountain, sorry. The mountain? Yeah, that stone came from a mountain. What mountain? Remember what I said in prophecy, mountains represent kingdoms, governments. What kingdom is Messiah cut out from? God's kingdom, because he's God. You see the difference? Now, here's the funny thing. There is a mountain in heaven, by the way. When we get to heaven after, after rapture, you will go into heaven to be escorted into heaven, and heaven sits on a great and high mountain. Revelation chapter 21. So God has made this mountain, and on top of this new Jerusalem, on top of it is the temple, and the throne of God is on top of this giant mountain. Where do you think the, uh, the Greeks got the idea of Mount Olympus? Why do you think all the Babylonian structures all over the world represent a mountain? The pyramids are a, a, a counterfeit of the mountain of God. The Aztecs and Mayans, have you seen their, their structures? They're pyramid, but the pyramid is a representation of a mountain. Because so all the ancient peoples tried to reconstruct the mountain of God in heaven and bring it to earth through their own hands. And that can never be accomplished by man. Only Messiah can bring that kingdom here. No, per, no person can. And so that's what it's trying to say. And what did it do? And it broke into pieces, the iron, the bronze, and the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. It's coming from God. It's signed, sealed, and delivered. Nothing's going to change. So he has just told Israel, you're going to go through thousands of years of trouble with these Gentiles. But in the end... The messianic kingdom will save you. And that's the principle. It gets better before it gets worse. Uh, sorry, it gets worse before it gets better. Now, you ready to dig in? Now, here's where the history comes in. Hang with me. I'll, I'll lose you like a wet bar of soap in a, in a shower, man. I, we're reaching high fruit, okay? First of all, you have the Babylonian Empire lasted from 605 to 539 B.C. Medo-Persia on the dot takes over, 539 to 331 B.C. Hellenistic Empire under Alexander the Great takes over 331 to 168 BC. The fourth empire came Rome. The best way to describe Rome is imperialism. Now, what is imperialism? I've, I've, I've mentioned this before, but it's, it's critical that you understand what imperialism is. According to Daniel chapter 7, when he sees this form, of, not the metallic man, but in beast form, he says, the beast that I saw, it's called, he calls the fourth empire the beast system. And he says, the beast, what I saw, was very different than any other empire I've seen before. It was different. What does he mean by different? It's this. Historically, no kingdom, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, even Alexander the Great, had never used imperialism. 
When they conquered other countries, what they would do is take the natives of that country and use them as vassals to run that country. But they never did it with their own people. They did it with vassals and then exacted taxes from them. Rome did something different. We're not, we're not going to trust the natives. We're going to put our own people in those places. And then we will put our own garrisons and soldiers there to make sure there's no uprisings. And we will crush the people by controlling them with Roman garrisons and Roman procurators in the area. And then we will tax them. There won't be any rebellion. So Rome figured this out. To prevent the rebellion from happening, they put their own people there. Festus, Felix, Pontius Pilate and then Roman garrisons all over the place, right? That's how they crushed Israel. And what was the complaint of the Israelites? Messiah, should we pay taxes to Caesar? What did he say? Render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's, and what is God's God. Now, wait a second. Most people don't ask the second question, what's God's? Render to Caesar, give him, give him the taxes, go ahead but you better render what, what, God, what, what belongs to God. What is that? What belongs to God? You! Give him his money. Who cares? But you better give yourself to God. Now, same thing is going to be applied to you and I. Because Rome has not went away, imperialism is on the march right now. It's making its way through our country right now. The globalists are eventually wanting to tax you, and I've mentioned this before, on your carbon emissions. You're eventually going to pay taxes if we're still here. If the rapture hasn't happened anytime soon, you will eventually see us paying taxes to some foreign entity like the UN or whatever. Because when they switch to a digital currency, they'll be able to trace this. They will know how much you have completely, and they'll say, we are, we're going to take 10% of what you have, and we're going to do it to fight climate change. And because this is a, a, a national emergency, it's a global emergency, and everyone's going to have to pitch in, right? That's what they're going to do. So imperialism is going to make its way. Let me ask you this question. Do you ever think that America will see the day where you have blue helmets walking in our streets? It's very possible. They've already talked about it. We may not be here, right? We may not be here. We could be raptured tonight and not see that. But they're already talking about that. They might have to put you in troops here. Look what they've done to our military. Look what they've done. Huh. That's imperialism. I'm sure by the time the Antichrist takes control over, his armies will be everywhere on the planet. That's a for sure. But it's starting to happen now. Then you'll go, uh, so basically what is predicted, there's the United States. That United States ran from 168 to 364 uh, AD. This is what we call the early church era and Jesus's era, right? That you see in the movies and stuff like that. Okay, but something happened. It went into a two-division. That's what those two legs on Daniel's statue represent. The two-leg division ran from 364 to today. You're in the two-legged phase of Daniel's metallic man. That's where you are prophetically. And quickly, that's ending, and we're going to advance to a third phase, if we're still here for it. The third phase is a 10-division stage. Again, this is what Daniel's predicting, and it's globalism, 10 global regions controlling the planet. Then the Messianic kingdom. So that's what we learned from Daniel. Okay, so here's where we're at, and this is where we're going, okay? Now, 
Get, let me give you some history. So just hang in there, follow me, because this is going to make sense after we're done, okay? So the fourth Gentile empire, Rome, obviously united phase, you, you know that, but let's dig in there. The two division stage of Roman imperialism in stage two, according to Daniel 241, the east and west balance of power started AD 364 when Emperor Valentinian divided the Roman Empire into an east and west division. Now, all, all historians know this. They'll say that, they'll say three, uh, 364 is when Rome ended. It didn't. It divided exactly what Daniel predicted. It divided. And you can see on the maps the division of the Roman Empire. It's all in the political maps in your history books. It divided just as Daniel said it would. Well, anyway, the Western Roman Empire headquartered in Rome, and the Eastern Roman Empire uh, settled in Constantinople, or today is Istanbul, in Turkey. So the, the East and the West had separated. Now, what did I say? We're still in the East and West leg portion of the, of the metallic man. Well, how did that happen? Watch history. The Eastern Division of Power remained in Constantinople until 1453. When it collapsed... When the Turks or the Islamic invasion happened and it collapsed it. But here's what I want you to see what happened once Constantinople collapsed. When it fell, the political rulers of Rome, okay, the eastern leg, and the scribes of Rome, the scholars of Rome, fled northward into Russia and infiltrated the government there. And they basically set up a Roman type of government called imperialism in Russia at the time. It didn't go away, it just transferred to Russia. It's still in Russia today. The rulers called themselves, oh, isn't this, um, this is an accident? Czars, you know what czars mean? Czars is Russian for what? Caesar. Oh, come on, it can't be that easy. They used the very name of the Roman Empire emperors? Yeah, they did, isn't that funny, czars. Russia gave herself the official title. Guess what? We're not going to call us the Russian Federation or the Russian United, whatever. No, we're going to call ourselves the Third Roman Empire. Why would they call themselves Rome? Why would they say that? Hmm. Eventually, the Eastern balance of power was centered in the Soviet Union and included the communist bloc of nations. It has since changed. With the collapse of the uh, uh, European communism, the Eastern balance shifted to Russia and the Commonwealth of the Independent States. Dr. Fruchtenbaum notes that in his PhD. Wait a second. Wait a second here. The, you're telling me, according to the prophet Daniel, according to history, that the, the eastern leg of Rome has centered itself in Russia? That that's the eastern leg of the Roman Empire. Yeah, that's the eastern leg. That makes Putin a very important person, doesn't it? In fact... It's the destruction of Russia that will move us to the third phase of global governance. Hold that thought. Let's go to the Western leg. The Western division of power remained in Rome from 364 to 476, and Rome fell, the Western part. But it, it transferred, it shifted to France under Charlemagne. Charlemagne is about AD 800. He called the domain, oh, guess what? France? No. Holy Roman Empire. Why do these guys keep calling themselves the Roman Empire? Because they are Rome. 
It's just a place that shifted. He said he called the domain of the Holy Roman Empire of the Frankish nation. Why did he just call it the Frankish nation? No, no, we got to use Rome. In 962, Otto I of, of Germany defeated the Franks and set up the Holy Roman Empire. Holy Roman Empire, mm-hmm. Keeps using the phrase of the Ger- German nation. The leaders call themselves, guess what? A Kaiser bun. Kaiser bread. You ever have a Kaiser bun for your hot dog or your sandwich? The word Kaiser is German for what? Hail Caesar. Now, wait a second. In the West, they're called Kaisers. In the East, they're called Czars, but it's really the same name. Hail Caesar. They call themselves the Roman Empire. Yes, because they're in the two-legged phase. Oh, my land. Since then, especially after World War I, the Western balance of power has been centered in the democratic nations of the West. France, Spain, England, Scotland, Germany, all those, all those Western European countries. Since then, in, in, in 364, the two-division stage began and continues to this present day. The centers of the balance of power may shift again, but it will remain essentially an east-west balance until it gives way to the third stage. We're there. Now, here's the thing. Let's go back to Putin. Let's go back to Russia. There's something going on in Russia that's twofold. We know, according to Ezekiel, Russia will invade Israel in the latter days and will try to take Israel and Jerusalem and, and, the, and, and the Temple Mount, and it will be teamed up with Turkey and Syria, uh, uh, Sudan, and uh, Libya, Okay. And they will attack Israel. But what, what we know from that invasion is that Russia, Iran, and Syria, and Turkey, and all of them are decimated by God. I mean, absolutely put down. There's no military left in those countries after God gets done with them invading Israel. He, he will destroy them right on the mountains of Israel. Russia will be a power no longer once God does this. Hence, the key in getting to a global government will be the elimination of Russia through the Gog of Gog May War. Because see, Putin's not gonna team up with NATO. He's not gonna team up with a global government. Putin, again, is thinking he's the new Caesar and he wants the entire world. He wants everything. He doesn't wanna partner with anybody. And that's the problem for the globalists. And they know that Putin is a problem. He will not team up with them. And so he will be expunged out of existence by the Gog of Magog war, which will then kick off how the rest of Western Europe, the West of Rome, will then fuse into becoming a global government once that player is removed. He represents the Eastern leg, Russia does. And once that Eastern leg is taken down, then the Western Europeans, which want globalism, will bring it in. So that's why it's key to watch Israel and Russia right now, because Russia is getting ready to get pounded by God to usher in globalism. God has just shown you a sneak peek into the geopolitical future of what's going on right now. You already know the end game, and you know why. So the missing piece is Russia before it kicks into full-blown globalism. Hmm, interesting. 
What are the future stages of Roman imperialism? A one world government. Are they talking about that? Yeah, I'll show you. A ten, a ten global stage, uh, ten, uh, ten horns, ten toes. You see that in the book of Revelation. And then the Antichrist stage, absolute imperialism. Are they talking about globalism or am I crazy? Am I, uh, am I, am I a conspiracist? You know, we used to be called conspiracists uh, 10, 20 years ago. Oh, you guys are crazy talking about the new world order. Ah, you guys are tinfoil hat brigades. We don't listen to you. You have no credibility. Oh, really? Because what we've been saying for the last 20 or 30 years, they're saying it now and they're doing it and implementing it. Klaus Schwab is the head of this among all the globalists. And they're all in the same ticket. The problem, he says, that, that we have is not globalization. The problem is a lack of global governance. Oh, thank you. We knew this all along, but that's what they want. This is what he's training everybody, world leader, to do. And we call it now the Great Reset. It used to be called the New World Order. It used to be called internationalism. It used to be called globalism. But the name for it now is the Great Reset. And the Great Reset is their documentation online of how they're going to usher in the global government. It's all online for anyone to read. World Economic Forum. Just do a search. It's all there. So check this out. When you go on the website... There's a whole thing, a very complicated scheme and strategy to bring in global governance. And it's all right there for anyone to see. I'm not crazy. They're talking like this. And they want to do it quick. They want to do it fast, and they want to do it soon. Wow. They have help. They have help from all the fake religions in this world. All the fake religions are pushing globalism. Look at this guy. This old boy is, the, is the, the prime candidate for the false prophet, okay? I'm not saying he is, but he's a prime candidate. Look what he says about global governance. A shift towards globalism is necessary. What? According to the Bible, it's not. According to the Bible, that's evil. He calls for a new supranational legal constituted body. You know what that is? A global court system is what he's referring to that supersedes the U.S. Constitution. Why? To enforce the United States, United Nations sustainable development. Oh, yeah, we want to save the planet. We've got to do all these things, these wonderful things, including population control. They want to sterilize people. They want to make it infertile. Then they want to practice soft euthanasia by rationing health care to our elderly. Oh, I'm sorry, here's some morphine. We can't, give, we can't help you with a transplant. We can't help you with this. Here's some morphine. You sacrifice yourself for the common good. You watch. It's coming. The common good. Look, at, look, that's the phrase, the common good. The idea is that individuals don't matter. The common good matters. So if they want you all to be vaccinated 100%, that's the common good in their mind. And you don't have a right to not be vaccinated. You see what I'm saying? That's how it works. You will give up your rights for the common good. That's globalism has become global, and nations must associate for their own benefit, come together as one, when a supranational common good is clearly identified, such as COVID-19, such as uh, climate disaster, such as the economic collapse that's coming, such as uh, the cyber attacks were going to come. Guys, you understand, we're going to be cyber attacked. They're saying, we, we just got to put your identity on your body. We can't allow this anymore. You would want that, right? To protect your money protect you from cyber attacks, just put it right here. No problem. We'll have it lined up at Target. No problem. 
there is a need for special legally constituted authority. He's talking about the global government capable of facilitating its implementation. They will put it in charge. They will, they will be the ones that implement it. Wait, that's called Roman imperialism. Yeah. And here's the thing. You'll own nothing. You're going to be happy, they say. You won't own anything. We're taking your land away. We're taking your houses away. We're taking your farming away. We're taking everything, all your water rights. We're taking everything. We will control it for the common good. And you'll be happy that you don't own anything. That's their plan. They say it in their scheme. We're here. And then you're going to be tested on your ESG score. Some of you have already seen this in your companies. This will be your social credit score. And no one will do business to you, with you unless you have a good ESG score. ESG means environmental. You've got to save the planet and help Greta Thunberg, okay? Social means you're woke. You have to be woke in order to participate in this system. And governance, you better have diversity on your business or in your board, because if you bless God, if you don't have diversity, you're a racist. So guess what? The new uh, Supreme Court nominee by Joe Biden, he says, I don't know who they are, but what did he say? She's gonna be black and she's gonna be a woman. That's ESG. They're doing it by quotas not based on merit, not based on education, not based on experience. No, we have quotas. We've got to have this amount of LGBT, this amount of trans, this amount of this, this amount of that, and to be ESG compliant. We don't care. We don't care what the qualification. Guys, you see that. He just said we're going to appoint somebody based on the color of their skin. That's racism. I thought we got past that. I thought we base people in, in our country on meritocracy. Are you smart? Are you educated? What's your experience? Then you get the job. If you're the most qualified, I don't care if you're purple. You're the most qualified. Hey, if you're having an open heart surgery, do you care what skin color the doctor is? I don't. Is he good? Is he qualified? That's all I care about. I don't care about the skin color. I'm having open heart surgery. I want the best. You see, what's happened is reversed it because of globalism. This is coming to a theater near you. You're going to have to do this. This is what they're going to apply. I mean, we, we could say no because the rapture could happen and this won't even happen. But if we're still here, your job will be based on your ESG score. Oh, we noticed that your social media accounts, you're really not woke enough. You better get on this critical race theory. Oh, you know what? Because we can't have anyone in our employment that's like this and thinks like you. You're abnormal. You're weird. No, you're biblical. And the digital currency is coming. Part of the global operation of the World Economic Forum and the rest of the globalists, they know in order to get global government, they have to have a digital currency put in place. So the only way you control all the economies of the world. This is why they're intentionally destroying our dollar. Did you see what the prophecy update said? 80% of the money right now floating in the American currency was printed off in the last two years. They're destroying the economy intentionally. It's not an act. These are not bumbling fools because they have to go to this. Rome's crushing imperialism. What did I say crushing meant? Control. We will control all of your money. That's how we will crush you and grind you down. And then they will put this on your, your hand to track you. This is not a, a, a fantasy, a theory. They're doing it now. 
They want it. That's part of what the Great Reset's all about, is getting you tracked. That's what's coming. These principles, you have, to get in, 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 you have to get into you and you have to accept them if you're gonna function correctly in this world that we're in. The first principle is this, it gets worse before it gets better. You have to understand that. You have to accept it. The second thing is suffering comes first, then glory. You will not get past that. You have to, Christ had to go to the cross before he ushered in the kingdom, right? Satan tried to get him to usher in the kingdom without going to the cross. You can't do it. The model is you suffer first and then the kingdom. You can't forget that. The battle will be lost. The, the battles we're face, facing, but the war has already been won. Remember, I told you, you win at the last second in the fourth quarter. But you're not going to win first quarter, second quarter, third quarter. Now, what does that mean? Here's the test. Can we fight the good fight of faith even though we know the battle will be lost in our time. That's the challenge. Or will the signs of the times make us afraid where we shrink back, go hide in the closet and put the white sheet on and wait for Jesus to come rapture us? While we, we become so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good anymore for him. That's the challenge. And I'm telling you right now, a bunch of Christians are getting off the ride saying, I don't want any part of that. I'm just gonna sit here and wait for Jesus. You're useless at that point in time. You're afraid. God can't use you. What's the motivation then for all of us? The motivation is Messiah comes back, destroys the armies of the kingdoms, destroys everybody. He melts them, guys. He literally melts them with the breath of his mouth. Most people don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about Jesus melting people on Sunday morning. Okay? I know it's a little hard. But Zechariah talks that he will. It's, it gets so evil that Messiah just, in one word, melts them all. They, they, they disintegrate. Like the guy on Indiana Jones that opened the ark, remember that? And he opened the ark and he started melting they melt like that. So what's our motivation? First of all, Messiah told us it would be like this. So we, we, we shouldn't be caught out of left field. He warned us, hey, it's going to get bad, dude. I, but I need you in this war. I need you to fight, even though it's going to get bad. Because you got to fulfill your duty. I, I gave you your walking orders. You know what to do. Here are your marching orders. Keep doing it. Yeah, but Lord, they're not responding. I don't care if they don't respond. I told you to do what I told you to do. I'll take care of the results. You just do what I told you to do. Don't worry about results. You're gonna be like Jeremiah. You're, I'm gonna send you in and I'm gonna tell you exactly what I told Jeremiah. They're not gonna listen to you. The majority of people will not listen to you, but that doesn't mean you shrink back from your duty. You tell them. Why? Because God wants a watcher on the wall. He wants us to fulfill our mission. And that watcher on the wall does this. He says to the watcher on the wall, if you don't warn them about what's coming, I'm holding you responsible for their blood. Because you knew it and didn't tell them. If you do tell them, then their blood's on them. That's why Paul said, I'm innocent of anyone's blood, he said. He had done his duty, he had done his mission, and he was a watcher on the wall. So here's the thing, a watcher on the wall doesn't care if they respond to the warning, they just do the warning. Because you know why? You gotta put them on notice. Now, here's the thing, you might get a few saved, which is great, 
But really what you're doing is putting out a warning, a notice. You're, you're making a testimony to them because here's what's going to happen. If you tell the truth to everybody as much as you can and they still don't respond, guess what? When they're at the great white throne judgment and they're standing before God, he's going to say, hey, do you remember when I sent Tom to you and he told you what you were doing is wrong and you needed to repent of that? Remember that? I sent him to you and you didn't respond. Now I have a witness here. Tom, come here. Did you tell him what I told you to tell him? Yes, I did. You are now guilty for, and responsible for that light I gave you. See, what happens is, even if they don't respond, God wants a record of it to witness against them at the judgment seat of Christ. Or sorry, the great white throne judgment. It will be used in their case against them. So that's part of what being a watcher is. You tell the truth when you need to. You don't stay silent. And, and a couple more, to be useful and pleasing to the Lord. What was the problem with Laodicea? They're lukewarm. That means they're useless. He can't use them. They're not neither cold nor hot. They're useless. They have went into the corner and, and, and pretended that nothing's going on, pretended that they're in a bubble, and they're now useless. Well, he can't use them. He can't use them. That's Laodicea. And lastly, your rewards. Your rewards. You fight in this losing battle because you will get rewards for fighting. We're not going to win the culture. It's over. That's not what we're here for. We're not here to win the culture. We're here to do what he called us to do. And if you do what he called us to do, you will be a Nike believer. Nike in Greek means overcomer. And he says, to him who overcomes will inherit all things. You will sit upon my throne as I have sat on my father's throne. You will eat from the tree of life. You will rule and reign with me in the messianic kingdom. The true world government under the Messiah, you will get to rule and reign with me as a priest and a king if you overcome, if you persevere to the end, if you fight until the day I call you home, and then I'll reward you. So let me ask you this question. Can you fight knowing it gets worse, if you can affirm that, then you're a rare breed. Because most people are jumping ship right now. Keep fighting. Absorb the principle. Accept this reality and accept your mission. You are here for a reason. Don't give in. Even though the tide is turning, you fight until the end, just like Noah did. And he got eight people on that ark. And that's all that mattered, is those eight people. At the end in the tribulation, Israel will fight for that remnant, that one-third that makes it through. And two-thirds of Israel will be wiped out. But what are they doing? They're fighting all the way to the end. You never give in. You fight until the good fight is done. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Sunday Sermons. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has recently started a second podcast called the Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Bible Study. 
Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.